morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. Um, if this is your first time here, let me introduce myself. Uh, my name's Ryan. I serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, before I dive in, I, I just want to do a little piece of personal business, and I hope you'll indulge me. He's going to kill me for doing this. But today, my son Ethan turns 12 years old. And so he's in the back. Ethan, if you'll wait, I just want to say, Ethan, I am so proud of you, and I love you, and happy birthday. So, love you, buddy. Happy birthday. <clears throat> hey. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, guys, uh, as Gus alluded to, man, today we come uh, to, a, to a somewhat difficult and controversial topic. I mean, one of the things that strikes me as I read the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is just how relevant and powerful they are. I mean, think about this. Jesus spoke these words on the other side of the world over 2,000 years ago. And yet the power and the impact of what he spoke on that hillside speaks to issues and topics that confront our world today as much as they did Israelite society all those years ago. And sometimes when we come to these passages, uh, they can seem kind of difficult. I mean, if I'm honest, this week I've, I've, I've felt a fair bit of anxiety in, in wanting to get this right, just in looking at the text and the different passages. Uh, not because of what God's Word has to say, but because I recognize how many lives have been personally touched by the issues surrounding divorce and remarriage. And so as we dive into this topic today, uh, what is it that Jesus has to say, and what does it then begin to look like? to realign our lives around that reality. And perhaps as we wrestle with that, the best place to start is simply by reading, excuse me, <clears throat> by reading, ooh, what is that? <coughs> by reading the text itself. And so if you have your Bible, open up with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read verses 31 to 32 together. And here's what we're told. And it was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, powerful, powerful words. What do we do with these? Again, I think it's important to recognize that today we're continuing on in this section of Scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. These words of Jesus become this picture of what it looks like to apprentice the way of Jesus in every dimension of our life. That through what we earlier looked at in the Beatitudes, this invitation to radically realign our perspectives and recalibrate them around this reality that Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven, that leaves no area of our life untouched, including those of our relationships. Last week, we launched into one of the first in this section known as the fulfillers. We see this pattern in the rest of chapter 5 where Jesus says something like, you've heard it said, but now I tell you. And in this section, what Jesus does is he brings us back to the heartbeat of the law. He reminds us that the pharisaical conventions of the day were missing the point of what the law was about from the very beginning. And he brings us back to the issues of the heart that surround these various topics and issues. And so it is today. In fact, what I want to suggest to you is that what Jesus is going to remind us of is that marital fidelity matters. Thank you, Amanda. Because of, it expresses God's heart for people as those created in the image of God. 
that marital fidelity matters because it expresses God's heart for people as those created in the image of God. Again, this lies very closely with what we looked at last week. This reality that even in our sexual relationships, the the boundary, the goal, is to see the other person as one created in the image of God, in the act of physicality, to celebrate and to draw out the beauty of who they are as one created in his image. I think the point that Jesus is making here is closely related. He's reminding us that the heartbeat of God comes back to this celebration of recognizing the other as one created in his image. And it's why the permanence of marital fidelity is so incredibly important. And so as we begin today, I think we have to begin simply by starting and looking at Jesus' passion for marital faithfulness. If you have your Bible, look with me here in verse 31. There we're told, and it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. What may not be clearly seen here is Jesus is actually making a reference all the way back to the Old Testament. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And here's what it's told, that we're told there, that when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her away from his house. Uh, There was this practice that was occurring in the ancient world that in the event of divorce, what would happen is that a certificate of divorce would be given in order to provide for economic uh, provision and standing uh, within the culture. And what began to happen is somehow the law drifted into this question of, well, what then were the grounds of infidelity? or this uh, indecency that they see, and what would it look like under proper grounds to issue a certificate of divorce in the proper way? You see, the trouble is, along the way, uh, what the Pharisees began to do is they began to twist the conversation from how do we celebrate the beauty and the image and the value of one created in the image of God to, well, gee, What's the legal process that I need to follow in order to do a divorce justly? And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to move the conversation from the legal loophole back to the heartbeat of what that law was always intended to do. Now, we know from uh, church history and uh, different midrashes that we have from Jewish culture that uh, at this time, there's actually a raging debate that's going on on among uh, some different schools within the Pharisee world. Think about them as kind of the Pharisaical Republicans and Democrats. I mean, these guys are going at each other like crazy. And there's two primary schools of thought that are championed by two chief rabbis. The first rabbi was one by the name of Hillel, And Hillel argued that, well, the indecency that's being talked about here in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is really any indecency or displeasure on the part of the man. So this displeasure could be, you know, he found someone that he found more attractive. Or this indecency could be dinner was burned. I mean, really what was happening in this culture was any possible reason on the part of the man was seen as a legitimate cause for divorce in that culture. A second view was presented by a rabbi by the name of Shammai. And Shammai said the only reason and the only basis for a divorce is illicit sexual immorality or an affair. 
And it's interesting because as Jesus will go on in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to attack this issue head on. Not only here, but later in the book of Matthew. In fact, we see that scene in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 5, and here's what we're told. And some Pharisees came to Jesus trying to test him. And they asked them, uh, when is it lawful for a man to, or is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. But the Pharisees begin to lose sight of that heart, that celebration of the permanence of marriage, and, and miss the original intention of the law. In fact, here's what I want to suggest to you Jesus is saying here is that he is reminding us that the original purpose of the law on divorce was to eliminate the reckless ways that men were backing out of marital covenants, not to legitimize the act of divorce. In fact, one of the things that we'll see as we begin to look at these different passages is the way in which Jesus will describe divorce as a concession and not a command. It comes not on the basis of God's design or desire, but as a concession to human brokenness and failure. Well, if we would come back to the heart of God for his design and desire for these marital covenants, one of the things that we simply have to return to is the design in the heart of God to champion each person as one created in his image, especially those closest to us. You know, as I was thinking about um, this passage, you know, I'm reminded that uh, in my own story as a widower, um, there have been so many moments that I've been reminded of the power of the invitation uh, that Jesus had in these verses. You know, as I think about the day that Tammy and I were married, one of my favorite moments, hands down my favorite moment of our ceremony, was she turned the corner in her beautiful wedding dress, stunning. And this little five-year-old girl cries out in the crowd, look, the princess made it! <laughs> and as, as she was being passed from her different brothers and coming down the aisle, it was, it was stunning. And I remember as I, as I stood at the altar and I saw her come, just this little prayer in my heart, of Jesus, that's how I want to see her all the days of our marriage. Because I know that's how you see her, the princess coming down the aisle. And you know, even through the journey of watching the princess make it and going home to Jesus as she lost her battle with cancer, I realized that one of the greatest gifts that God had given me was the opportunity of seeing the beauty of that princess, of holding the beauty of that princess. And some of my greatest regrets are the ways in which I failed in that. But I want that image, that ideal, to be the design and the plan and the desire all the days of our marriage until she went home. 
And I think for each of us, the invitation that we are given is simply to ask, do I see this other person as one created in the image of God? I mean, in the midst of laundry and school schedules and shuffling kids and all the different responsibilities that come in life, do we recognize that this person we walk with is a prince, is a princess, one created in the image of God, profoundly cherished and loved by him? I think that's the picture of what Jesus is calling us to in this kind of marital fidelity. That's the kind of image. We don't want to do anything that cheapens or minimizes that relationship because we understand who they are. And it's from that basis that all of the commands that we now begin to look at in the law will begin to flow. I mean, if this is the ideal, then I think the next question we have to ask is, where in the world did divorce come from in the first place. But before we go there, I want to pause here because, again, I want to recognize just how profound uh, this issue really is. You know, studies say that as many as half of marriages in our society will result in divorce. And I've walked with many dear followers of Jesus who have said to me, Ryan, being divorced in the church is like carrying a black mark. I want to tell you from the beginning, before we say anything more around this topic, that no matter what is in our past, there is nothing that is beyond the grace of God to redeem. And as we begin to talk uh, through some of the nuances of this issue, again, I want to recognize that for Jesus, this isn't just topics of theological platitudes. These are stories and moments and people. But I do believe his word gives us guidance around some of these issues. And so what do we do with that? Well, maybe perhaps then it's good to begin in what Jesus himself says, going back to Matthew chapter 19. Again, we come back to the heartbeat of what's surrounding this issue. And there we're told, then they said to him, why then did Moses command her to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And then listen to what Moses says. Where did divorce come from? Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. You know, the question they asked him was, well, well, wait a second, wait a second. If she can't be sent away for any kind of indecency, why then does Moses command her to be issued a certificate of divorce? And, and this is where I picture Jesus kind of doing a face palm, like, dude, you guys are completely missing the point about what this is about. In fact, notice what Jesus does. Notice where Jesus puts the emphasis. Who is the one that commanded them to give the certificate of divorce? Was it God? No, it was Moses. Moses gave them a certificate of divorce. Why? because of your hardness of heart. In fact, one of the things that we simply can't escape in this text is the Pharisees were asking the question, when is divorce and remarriage permissible? And Jesus is saying, it's the wrong question. The question is, how do we celebrate the permanence of marriage? How do we celebrate God's design and heartbeat 
from what marriage was designed to be from the beginning. In fact, the first thing that I want to suggest to you about Jesus' perspective is the reminder that God's design from the beginning was for marriage to be permanent. Notice that he says it, it's not always been this so. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, when he invited them into a one flesh, flesh relationship, the design, the purpose, the meaning was that that would be a picture of his love and his relationship with his people and even with his bride, the church. But the trouble is, human brokenness got mixed into the equation. But if, if we would ask the question, what is God's perspective on this issue? Uh, scripture speaks clearly. I think about Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, where he just says in, in very direct terms, God hates divorce. But what do we do with that? But then again, who says divorce is a good thing? I mean, even people who have walked through divorce have shared with me that divorce is the painful ripping apart of a marital relationship. Divorce is this painful break in covenant. And from the beginning, it was never God's idea. It was never something that was to be entered into lightly. And what was so tragic about the Pharisees in Jesus' day is they reduced it down to a legal argument of what's the least I have to do in order to back out of this relationship legitimately. And Jesus is saying, what are you doing? You're missing the heart of what the law was always designed to be, to celebrate and to champion this other as one created in the image of God. But it's here then that we're reminded of a second reality, that divorce was given as a concession and not a command. Again, did you notice there in Matthew 19, the language that's given is that Moses permitted you to issue a certificate of divorce. Moses allowed it. It wasn't the idea, it wasn't the plan, it wasn't the goal. It was simply an accommodation, or I will use the language, a concession that was given in order, to provide perfect, in order to provide for protection and championing within that culture. Again, we're reminded that God was the one who made marriage permanent. God was the one who celebrated and championed marriage as his design and plan for humanity. And so the Pharisees come with somewhat of a loaded question when they ask this question, much as we might today. When is divorce okay? It's a very interesting question. Can I suggest to you the issue is in the question itself? When is divorce okay? It's not. It's not. I've never walked with someone who has said, man, let me tell you, my divorce was the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> let me tell you, divorce, it's a walk in the park. Divorce, oh my word, that was so fun. No. It is a painful, difficult ripping apart of two souls. You know, it's kind of like um, asking the question, when is amputation okay? It happens. It happens. But it requires a severing of a body part. And it has lifetime consequences as a result of that pain and path that a person walks through. 
when is divorce okay? It's not. But then what do we do with the concessions that Moses seems to be allowing for in this passage? You know, is, does Scripture make space for divorce as a legitimate path? Well, let me say that as I have read the Scriptures, I see the context for um, at least two, maybe three. I think the first is abandonment or desertion by a non-believing spouse. We find the evidence for this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The other is the issue here, sexual immorality. Uh, there is some kind of break in, in, the, in the physical union that's happened in the marital relationship. And now what happens in the decree of divorce is simply a ratification and a recognition that the covenant has already been broken. Um, but let me say that in most situations I've walked through, those are the easy ones to navigate. Uh, one of the questions that I often get asked is, Ryan, what do you do about situations of abuse? Emotional, physical, and the like. And let me say from the beginning that I do not believe that the words of Jesus command someone to remain in a physically abusive relationship. In fact, let me say that for far too long, I think the church has been implicitly um, involved, at the very least, in the propagation of encouraging people to stay in those situations. I personally have held the, held the arms of a woman who, for 25 years, was told to cover up her experience of domestic violence because her husband was a leader in the church. And friends, it is an ugly blight that we have to get serious about. And let me say that if you find yourself in an abusive relationship, call the police, get help, reach out. But I, I think the question then that gets asked is, well, what about the nuances of each individual situation? You know, this week I sat down and I was thinking, through, okay, what if I were to prepare a grid of what it looks like in this situation or not? And you know what I realized about two minutes into that process? That would be pastorally irresponsible at best. Because the nuance of each story, the nuance of each situation is unique. And if I were to come up with a list of specifics, the reality is, there would be 10,000 variations on what those specifics look like. My advice would simply be this. Don't do it alone. Don't wrestle with those questions alone. Seek out the elders. Seek out one of us pastors. Seek out people to walk with you and wrestle through those tensions together. But I think one of the most important things that we can recognize is that this isn't something that we take lightly. This isn't something that we dismiss or minimize. But it's an invitation to radically live our lives in light of God's call to the fidelity and passion for marriage. Now with that, let me, let me just take a quick pause and say maybe you're here today and you're saying, oh man, I am so thankful. This doesn't apply to me. You know, um, uh, we're happily married or I've never been married or I'm a student. Can I tell you that again, this is a fulfiller. It's first and foremost about the issue of the heart. And so let me ask the question, what is your posture towards the relationships that are closest to you in your journey? Is it one that I want to be one who champions and, and builds and encourages the other, or do I simply see them as a means to my own happiness and convenience? And the second that they fail to meet that, they're out. 
know, it's interesting, in the therapeutic world, uh, a secular therapist by the name of John Gottman talks about that the greatest predictor for divorce, even greater than infidelity, is what he calls stonewalling. It's the temptation to not work on it anymore. It's the temptation to not continue to pursue the intimacy, the relationship, the purpose of seeing the Imago Dei drawn out in the other. And if I'm honest, I can tell you that there have been times that I have seen two people who have not walked the path of divorce um, legally, but in the day-to-day of their everyday life, you wouldn't know the difference. Because they have drifted apart, because they have lost sight of this vision to champion the heartbeat of God for the permanence of marriage. This beautiful invitation that we have to champion the Imago Dei in the other that we walk with. And it's here then that uh, we're confronted with a second issue that often gets a lot of play around this issue. And it's, what was Jesus' teaching? Not only around divorce, but around remarriage. And here, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 to 9, and I tell you, Whoever divorces his wife except on the basis of sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. We wrestle with these words because they are so incredibly direct. And again, I think think it's so important to understand the context and the backdrop of Jesus' words as he writes these messages. Remember, in these fulfillers, Jesus has square in his sights these Pharisees who are priding themselves. Oh, let me tell you, I am such a good, upstanding person. I followed the legal process to the hilt before I divorced her. I'm good. I'm good. And and what Jesus is saying is, you've reduced it down to a pure legal loophole. You have lost the sight of seeing a person in this process. And what the Pharisees were essentially doing is they were looking for a religious way to get out of their marital covenant rather than following the heartbeat of God for the championing of the other. Again, I go back to those words in Matthew 19. And notice what Jesus says. It was because of your hardness of heart that Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And again, this repetition, and I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Let me say from the beginning, I think the issue that Jesus is taking here is because of the severing of that original relationship. It it comes back to uh, not remarriage as a primary issue, but remarriage as a secondary issue to his primary concern around the permanence of marriage in divorce. And so what does that mean? And again, in so many places of this text, I think we have to look at it both in terms of the theological principle and the concessions that surround it. And I think at the most basic level, theologically, from my reading of the text, from my design and desire to sit in what God says, I simply have to say that remarriage outside of the biblical concessions for divorce lie outside of God's heart and plan for marriage. Now, what do you do with that? It's a big statement. Let me offer a couple of thoughts around that. 
Number one, again, I want to emphasize that the issue is not first and foremost in the act of remarriage. It's in, it's in the back to the issue of the divorce. And what do you do then with the person who says, well, I got remarried. What, what do I do now? I mean, I've sat with people and they've said, look, okay, does, does this mean that we need to get divorced and go back to our original spouses? I don't think anything legitimately is gained by that action. I think in the eyes of God, a marriage is a marriage. This is not so much an issue of what lie in our past, but an issue of what's our trajectory as we move into the future. And let me say here that if, if your relationship has been touched by this element in your story, it is not the singular defining piece of your story. It's simply a piece of it. And it becomes an invitation to return to the heartbeat of God for the permanence and the celebration of what marriage is all about. But can I also offer this? That neither is remarriage the mandated path. You know, I've walked with couples. Some of the greatest privileges I've had as a pastor is to walk with couples who have been touched by one of the legitimate biblical bases, like infidelity. And that couple, in the grace and the mercy of God, digs their feet in the sand and says, you know what? This marriage is worth fighting for. And though the covenant has been broken, we are going to pursue reconciliation and restoration. And in an incredible testimony to the grace and the mercy of God, they work it out and they walk the long, painful, difficult path of reconciliation. And it is stunning and beautiful to see. Again, what do we do, though, if remarriage is, is a part of our story? What, what, what if this is you know, something that we're facing, something we're walking through, something we're considering? Again, for me to stand on this stage and to say to each individual situation from a distance what the counsel should be, feels pastorally irresponsible to me at best. But I will say this, have the conversation, wrestle through the tensions of this together, but if we're going to look at it from a purely black and white, what is the theological principle surrounding the heartbeat of God on this issue? Again, I think we have to come back that God's design was for marriage to be a permanent, lifelong covenant. hard. It's hard. Can I tell you this week, like honestly, as I've been prepping this message, I have felt so much anxiety, not because of being ashamed of what God's word has to say, but because I recognize the nuance and the tension that topics like this bring. And I want to tell you again that if divorce and remarriage are a part of your story, it is not the single greatest reform the single greatest defining moment of your story. The most important part of your story is that Jesus died, that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus is drawing you into a relationship with himself. And the invitation here is not to be consumed with the shame of the past, but in the present and in the future to radically wrestle with the tension. What does it look like? To align with God's heart for the permanence and the celebration 
of marriage. And as I sat in this text and I wondered, okay, Jesus, where do we go from here? The question that I kept coming back to again and again is simply this. Where is God inviting me to care and protect those closest to me? Friends, for those of you who are married, I think a very important question to wrestle with is simply to play the tapes back over the last week, month, year. Is your marriage defined by how the other can meet your needs, how you can be satisfied, how they are simply a tool for your own happiness? Can I suggest that if that's the case, you're missing something there? for God's heartbeat of what marriage was designed to be? Or do we recognize that this, the people we do life with, the people that we walk with, are an entrustment that have been given to us by God to champion his image, to champion the beauty and the holiness of the prince and the princess that do life with us? And that from the beginning, our heart, our desire, our plan is to see the glory of God drawn out in the other. That's what it looks like to come back to the heartbeat of what Jesus is celebrating in marriage. To recognize the preciousness, the value, the treasure that's been entrusted to those closest to us. Friends, as we wrap up today, I just simply want to make space for us to do business with God. Number one, if you're here today and this message has triggered shame, you know, this feeling that you're defective or or something's wrong with you or you're a second-class follower of Jesus because of what's in your past, I want to name that and I want to tell you I believe that's a lie straight from the evil one. And that anything we bring before God and confess, he redeems and he heals And if that's you today, I invite you to come before God in this time and and hear his continued affirmation of his love for you. Or maybe you're here today and you would recognize, you know, like the Pharisees, maybe I've been looking for the legal loophole. Maybe, Maybe I've been asking, what's the minimum that I have to do in order to be a good husband, to be a good wife? Rather than coming back to what it's always been about from the beginning how we champion the glory and the beauty of God in our spouse. Would you allow the God of the universe to continue to shape, refine, and direct you, to call you and show you new ways every day, the gift of drawing that out in the other? So, tough words. Like maybe even today there are more questions than answers. I'm okay with that. Let's have the conversation. Let's keep first things first. Let's remember the heartbeat of God that we celebrate the beauty and the glory of the ones entrusted to us. And from that place, may we live in a way that honors and celebrates him in every way. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up. And as they make their way, we're just gonna take a couple of moments in silence. Between you and God, invite you to hear his voice.